0: Tonight's topic is uh, plant pr- pressure, plant pressure systems, uh, how we use them, how we, what we do with the data, etc. And, and obviously, anyone watching, if you've got any questions, anything you've ever wanted to know, uh, just fire away uh, in the comments, and, and we'll, we'll try and get to them. Bruce, ridiculously experienced in this area, so thanks so much for uh, for being to come on. Uh, As yeah. you've obviously moved, we've moved from a Thursday to a Wednesday, so thanks for being so sort of uh, flexible. But we're going to get cracking with with the question that came in. Um, most really, I had more than one person send this to me and is, but like, what is the sort of the, the dummy's guide to the center of pressure? If you had to explain to someone who is, who is, uh, you know, completely new to this topic, you know, what is the center of pressure? What does this all mean? How would you sort of field that question?
1: So I'm going to share the screen here. If you look on the left hand side in through here, and I'm also going to take this, make this granular, um, you can see all these little squares through here. These are send cells in the, in the center, in, in the, uh, uh, the pressure sensor. So all these little cubes here, uh, pick up peak you know pressures when they're there. So center of pressure basically is an average. So as the, the sensors in a row, um, as the pressure is moving forward, they'll do an average all across the row, and then the highest area, that's where they're going to plot that center of pressure as it can, the foot, as the foot continues to roll forward, um, and that's essentially what's happening. Now you can see here, this is mine center of pressure. It's actually, uh, you know, relatively normal, uh, very much midline. Good pressures underneath the big toe joint because I've been wearing my orthotics for a long time, and they're working for me. They're relatively successful. They're not perfect, but uh, that's that's me more so than the orthotics. So that's how I would describe center of pressure more than anything else if that helps. It's, it's an average of all the sensors in a row as you continue to move forward, it's gonna do that and it will plot that line. So sometimes the line will obviously curve laterally. Occasionally the line can curve medially. It doesn't happen very often that it will curve medially, but there are reasons for that. Um, but normally it will curve laterally for, for uh, structural reasons and functional reasons, reasons within the first ray.
2: As you, just on the centre of pressure, Bruce, just something occurred to me. And <clears throat> if you look at, especially at, um, probably the, the, that picture in Mert Roots' book about how the centre of pressure is, is quite laterally, oh, sorry, quite medially, initially at the heel, and then goes way out laterally, and then comes across and goes out through the fist But when you look at a lot of plantar pressures, they're almost straight. Yes. So a little bit. Yeah. So, what's the difference there?
1: <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, the difference there is. I don't think Rude had any planner pressure to work with. That's how he assumed a good, yeah. the best functioning feet would function. And he's not really, it's not right. I mean, that, that, that needs, that book should be updated because it's, it's an out of date. It's, it's just, yeah. it's incorrect. Oh. Um, and it's, it's not their fault. They were doing the best they could. He made a pretty good assumption. Um, but the thing is it, it, there are lots of reasons for why the center of pressure can lateralize or medialize or stay center Depending on how the depending on the orthotic, the shoe, and especially primarily the foot, but it can also depend on what's happening proximally at the at the uh, the torso, the hip. You know uh, how they're functioning. Those things come into play. That's the thing, Those are the things that stymie me the most. Focusing primarily on the foot, but um, normally you don't really go super lateral, or super medial at the heel. It's maybe yeah. a little bit lateral at the heel more so than medial. Though you can see on this again, I'm going to share this screen. You'll see right here that um, look how high the pressures are here but look where the center of pressure is okay yeah. so for whatever reason it's showing that this is this is there as far as that calculation is i don't know how the program works but that's how it works and different sensors have different numbers of sense cells so the pr sensors tend to have fewer sense cells than the tech scan sensors this is tech scan um, some of the newer sensors that are coming out have even fewer sensors still and they're trying to do center of pressure calculations, and I'm really taking a lot of those with a big grain of salt because you got really, really big sensors that are doing that. So, you know, it, it's it just un, work with what it works with and just understand, try to understand the calculations if they'll tell you because obviously they're proprietary.
2: Yeah, thanks, Bruce. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll come back with a follow-up question. I'm just trying to download a picture I want you to comment on, but it's going to take me a few minutes. So let's move on to the next question, Ian, and then I'll come back to that. Sure.
0: Yeah, it's still on the same topic, actually. And it's just just picking up on something you said, Bruce, um, that that classic word that we all love to hate in in podiatry circles, which is the word normal. And we talk about the sort of, um, you know, the the normal centre of pressure. Um, And when we talk about things like normal foot posture, you know, we we get into huge debates and huge controversy and what is normal. Is there the same sort of debate when it comes to these plantar pressure readings and these centre of pressure trajectories? Or is it a bit more accepted that there is a, a norm?
1: Well, you know, I mean, there's two ways to answer that question. I, I from the thousands of pressure uh, profiles that I've looked at, I would tell you that the normal would be uh, lateral midline to the heel, moving laterally more than center midline through the lateral column as you through the midfoot um, up to about the fifth MPJ, then swinging back over to usually the second or third MPJ with minimal pressures underneath the, the great toe. Um, and hallux the center pressures just kind of going to go out between that second and third mpj that would be a combined normal of everything that i've ever seen now what i will tell you though is the caveat is this it all depends on the structure and function of that foot and ankle okay so if you've got a truly plantar flexed very stiff first ray it's going to change things they won't it will medialize the center pressure will move medial very quickly because that first ray does not have much if any excursion. So it's very stiff. So it's going to change things. Now quite often the fifth ray may be either compliant or very stiff as well in those instances. So there's excursion and compliance issues, stiffness issues at the lateral column and the medial column. Those things matter. So what I can tell you is in those patients who have long second, third, and fourth or second, third, and fourth rays, you know, if you see the x-ray and they've got metatarsalgia or neuroma issues, they tend to, they may have higher pressures on the lateral column if they have an ankle joint aquinas, because they're going to hit plant, they're going to, they're going to plantar flex very quickly. The heel's going to come off the ground very quickly, or if they have a limb length difference issue. So they're going to continue to be on that lateral column and then they're going to move medial. Okay. So there's lots of things at play here for everybody to understand and how that works. So it's, it's, it depends. This is why I talk about these things all the time. This is why I talk about, I know I mentioned my Mercury XML, which I've been very coy about, but it's essentially, it's, just, it's an evaluation process that I use. It's, it's very specific segmentally, and it pairs very, very much so
2: with with the pressure mapping. Sure. Thanks, Bruce. Now, look, I've managed to download this picture, okay, um, which I'll share, this is I downloaded this from a lecture I have in, on my boot camp on the flow motion model. Have you ever seen a center of pressure that looks like that? No. No, either have I. Good, thank you. <laughs> um, Ian, Ian may know the backstory, but this is that you can see you know, you're striking the ground, uh, you pronate you know, the suspension phase so that the load goes medially here, then it goes way over laterally, literally to the base of the fifth net. And I, I just, I've seen, I've looked at thousands of planet pressures. I've never seen anything looking like that, but this is the uh, alleged normal. So um, I just need you to confirm that I'm not the only one that's never seen it.
1: (laughs) Well, if you take out the suspension phase in that picture and then connect a line between the the contact and the third one, whichever, whatever that was, Hmm. that would be relatively what what I described as normal initially. But I mean, what they don't understand obviously is they've never really done any pressure mapping that. There's not much meat in the medial column for most people to necessarily put pressure in that area anyway. And if there's instability in that area, you move away from instability. That's how pressure mapping works. Where they, where it's stable, the pressure is there.
2: Yeah. No, I think this was a bit of wishful thinking of someone yeah. wanting the pressure to be that way to fit into their model of, of the way they describe foot function. But yeah. So anyway, let's Absolutely. move on now. <laughs>
0: there's a lot about the human foot that particular individual doesn't understand but that's probably yeah. another day. <laughs> yeah. um, so we're gonna co- we're gonna come on to um what this information you know what, what we do with this information or uh, what it means in a second but one other question that came in which is probably sensible to ask right now is uh, what what other information do we get from these pressure reading systems um obviously we've talked about the center of pressure but is that the thing you, you use mostly, or if not, what sort of stuff are you, when you look at this data, are you really trying to pull from it and finding most useful?
1: Well, one of the things I'll tweet about quite often when I want to go on my tweet rants is uh, um, timing matters so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Howard, t- Howard, obviously, Dannenberg taught me that. Um, you know, he looks at the force time curves a lot. Uh, I like to run through the static images, the, the peaked images. Um, frame by frame by frame, and I can compare accelerations. I can show you that real quick if you like. Um, it's just a matter of uh, if you off-peak this, which I'm doing right now, and then you just advance. You can see how that moves forward, and it'll do it again. Okay, You look at it this way. You can compare accelerations from from left to right, and it can make a difference. So you can advance this frame by frame by frame, easily that way as well. Okay. So that's one of the things I'll look at. I will look at center of pressure. That makes a difference. Um, I will look at force time curves, which are over here because that can give you some interesting information. I don't think we should talk about that too much because it can be that that takes a lot of time. It can be confusing. Um, you know, I will look at peak pressures depending on what the issue is. If they have a metatarsalgia or neuroma issue in general, where that area is, will show up Okay. And there are structural and functional reasons for that. Um, so that if they have, they're prone to callus or ulceration formation, again, you'll see those high pressures for a prolonged period of time quite often. Um, Craig talks about loading and unloading rates, um, especially with uh, limb link difference or things like that. And then we can get to that when, when you're ready for that, but there, you know, mainly I'm looking at timing. I'm looking at the static pressure comparisons, the center of pressure, and uh, what the function is underneath the first MPJ, how quickly does the lateral column load? How quickly do the heels unload uh, compared to what my physical examination was? Do they have a limb link difference? If they do, is it structural? Is it functional? If it's functional, and then when I treat that, um, either via taping and felt or via an orthotic modification, do those, do those, uh, uh, does it quantitative, quantitatively change? In other words, did my prescription work? So those are the things I'm looking at. Does it make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll talk about your clinical decision making in a second. But do we have enough confidence in this kind of data to to say with with with, with confidence, I guess, that, that if we're screening uh, an asymptomatic population, that that it's predictive, consistently predictive of anything? We, are we there? Are we there with that sort of this sort of information yet?
1: As far as I'm concerned, yes. And I understand your question uh, because the majority of the studies obviously are done on asymptomatic individuals, which is wrong at times. I understand why it's done that way, but uh, it's not always beneficial. Um, regardless, even those who are asymptomatic may have structural and functional issues that researchers are failing to pick up on that would lend to different functioning patterns. You know, So like say... Um, a high-end running company or shoe manufacturing company like Nike and they want to take a look at all, they want to look at all their planner pressures and they're looking at all their team members, their high-functioning team members, whether they're the absolute elites or the sub-elites. They're fast people. Fast people tend to have more rigid foot structure, more stiffness in there because that's how they're faster than the rest of us. There are other factors and components that go along with that, but they're not going to have pancake flat flexible feet or they're not going to be able to run as quickly and turn over as quickly as they normally will. So they're looking through a keyhole when they do their little in-house studies and they're only getting a very limited patient population to understand. So I've, I've had a much broader patient population so I've seen it on both sides. So I think I have a 17 years worth of better understanding and Howard's gotten even more than I do. Um, but yes the, the problems with the research are that it's not specific enough, especially with symptoms or problems. Um, the benefit of it is it gives you enough of a dot, a data, enough data to say we did see these things that you can compare that then to a uh, symptomatic population and say if we can see it in the, sim- in the asymptomatic population, chances are we're going to see it even more in the symptomatic population. And there are plenty of studies out there, whether they were done directly or indirectly on these things, that, tout- that touch on pressure pressure mapping, whether it's center of pressure, timing, or other things like that, that you can connect these dots and infer what's going on, which is what we do clinically. I'm not a, I'm not a PhD researcher, so I don't have to take everything away and, and make no assumptions. I get to make assumptions every single day because I'm a clinician. <laughs> so yay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, um, just Bruce, Emma Cowley just made a, a, a comment with a question mark after it, and she's just said uh, COP is a proxy for kinematics with a question mark after it. Which is an interesting uh interesting thought.
1: <laughs> well, I mean everything that's in, in um Norman uh you know uh and I Norm uh from from, from TechScan. Um yeah. and we talked about this and he said a long time ago that uh, pressure mapping is kinematics. Okay, it's the motion of the foot. It's 2D, okay, it's not fully 3D, but it's showing the planar pressure. So you can infer lots of different things and how that works. And, um, you know, you know, less Norman, I, uh, and, uh, sorry what, for what happened to him. That's a different, different yeah. story and situation, but he was exactly right. Pre- all pressure mapping, regardless of whether it's just center of pressure is kinematics of foot function. When Howard Dannenberg explains the delays in the force time curve and how they are constant force over a prolonged period of time, because that means that something is not moving. There is a joint, there is a segment that is not Moving, pivoting, or rotating as it normally should, and something has caused that flat line. That's kinematics, just as much as it is if, if we picked that up on 3D. We're using Bicon imaging, okay? So it compares. Now, when I the benefit of me doing what I've done for 17 years is I can take uh, inertial measurement unit data or Vicon 3D kinematic data, and I can look at those studies. And after puzzling through them because I don't see them all the time for a brief, for a slightly longer period of time, I can know. That if I did the pressure mapping, I pretty much know what's going on with that foot, one side versus the other. I've got a pretty good idea because the data is all very, very similar. But if you combine them and you've got the pressure mapping with these other kinematic datas, you get that much more information, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, Actually, M has just followed up and with another question. You know, in the foot or higher? And I, I suspect the answer to that is higher. But we just, from the plantar pressure, you just can't tell what joint it is. You know, this, you know, that, that flat spot that, that you talk about. We talk about, well, you talk about, I talk about it as well. Yeah. Well, she's right.
1: You know, you got, that's why you have to know what's going on. If there's a reason from your exam for you to appreciate the fact that there's going to be a delay in function because of a functional hallux limitus or an ankle joint issue or excessive pronation that may have caused those things. That's one thing if you're not picking up on those and there's delays, but then you see that flat line anywhere. now you may need to start thinking a little bit higher because there could be other reasons for why that occurs.
2: And we've just got another comment from Simon Dickinson. Just, I mean, you, you mentioned this briefly earlier, but how well can you quantify the load rate? And that's obviously the shape of the curve, you know, that's.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I'm not a mathematician and I don't write the, the programs that, that gives this data, I think a lot of it is up. I mean, to me, I mean, the the reason I, I like TechScan, other than the fact that I it's the first, it's the only unit I've ever had as far as pressure mapping is concerned. I've had a good relationship with them. They also have the highest, it's like a 4k TV is what I tell people. It's ultra high, de- high definition mm-hmm. versus other ones that have fewer sensors. Um, that doesn't mean that PR is any necessarily any less. Many people would argue that it is absolutely not, but again, it comes down to, uh, the great, you know, how much can you break down the data and tech has twice as much, uh, as many pressure sensors in their sensors, uh, cells in their sensors than PDR does, which is going to give you more granularity, which you would think may make their calculations. If their calculations are equal at a higher level, um, that's my opinion, and I back that up completely. No, um, again, I'm not I'm a clinician, not a mathematician. So. No.
2: but I, I think for clinical use, yeah, you, know, you, you draw a box on an area, and you get a curve in yep. that box, and the load rate is the slope of that curve. You can yes. We can debate how accurate that is based on number of sensors and the different technologies used. Um, I think from my own work, I didn't spend a lot of time looking at the load rate. I spent, I reckon, I spend more time looking at the the, the down. Yeah, what's the rate of the load coming off, Um, especially under the heel? I I, I went through a stage where I thought that was a really important parameter. Um, Well, I mean, they both are. I mean, the the thing is, you know,
1: what happens, a lot of people, uh, you walk behind people and you see these kids walking in keds and girls and boys and their heel pops up off the ground. They hang there for a second and then they move forward. Yeah. that's going to convert into kinematics as far as pressure mapping is concerned, yeah. because you're going to see a quick unloading rate, then a flat line, you know, you know, not, not completely flat, but it's, then it's going to kind of rounded and then it's going to drop off depending on how quickly they move forward. Now there are reasons for all of those, but we probably don't have time, but if you want to get into those, I'd be happy to.
2: <laughs> yeah. Maybe just hold up. We never get through everything in these sessions anyway, but maybe we'll hold that one. Come back to the end. You got you got some more questions there in Yeah.
0: Yeah, just following on from our theme, really, which was um, we talked about sort of the screening of asymptomatic. Let's talk about the the symptomatic, the the people in front of you, the athletes or whoever they are with the the pathology, the known pathology, which I'm presuming, you you know, you, you have an idea before you get them anywhere near your pressure system because of the history, the physical. How do you... How does how does this extra bit of data, and I'm making an assumption that you do it on everyone, and and call me out on that if if that's incorrect. But how does this bit of pressure data that you collect um, significantly influence or add to your clinical decision making? uh, And and do you think it's dramatically different to an assessment that you would do without that data?
1: Well, uh, just like there are forced time curves, there's also learning curves. Um, I know that Howard got to a point uh, towards the end of his career where he was doing fewer of the full pressure analyses that he was doing earlier on. And I know why that is because he already knew from how the foot functioned pretty much how it was going to do that. The beauty of it is you're always going to be surprised, okay? Occasionally you will see things that will surprise you once you've done this enough. But initially, for the first five or ten years of doing these, you're gonna, it's going to make a difference. Where it really makes a difference for me um, was in what am I going to do from an orthotic prescription basis? How am I going to tape the foot? Where am I going to put my padding so that I can mimic an orthotic device? Um, and in doing that, you can see the changes that you can affect on the foot. Now, from that, I learned kind of bass-ackwards, so to speak, um, I, what I, the nice way for me to say it is I've learned to reverse engineer, um, I reverse engineered how an orthotic works into what I did with the taping and padding that I, and the results that I got from pressure mapping. So being able to experiment and do these things and see, no, that didn't make a difference. Yes, that did make a difference. And you can also talk to the patient and see what their things and see how things are. It doesn't always work the way you want them to. Okay. Cause there are always reasons where you can't sometimes provide enough stability even through a device to get them to propulse the way that you want them to, or they have other upper, uh, hamstring and, and glute issues. And they're just, uh, they're starting to get older and they can't propulse anyway because of balance issues. So there are always reasons why you can't always get the full outcomes that you want, but does it make a difference? Absolutely. Um, I do it in the higher end more often than I do in the lower end of my patients now, um, because it can be time consuming but the thing is, you know, the reason I do that is because they want to see the difference. That's why they're there. I also want to make sure I'm not making any mistakes. Everybody has a day where you're a little bit rushed or a little bit tired and you're, maybe you're not focusing as much as you did. You go through your exam and you're like, Oh, this is all pretty much symmetrical. And then you go and you do this and you're like, what the hell is that? What did I miss? You go back and look at things again and you're like, ah, okay. I didn't do a very good job on that ankle joint Um, assessment that I did. I really need to do the ankle joint lunge instead of doing a cheating ankle joint lunge test on the table, which sometimes I will do. So, you know, just doing a more thorough evaluation. It's things like that that will catch. But also when I work with high level athletes, I can test their shoes. I'll bring in multiple pairs of shoes and I'll test them and I'll say yes, yes, no, or no, no, yes, or absolutely not on any of these. They all stink. Find something else. Those things make a difference too and how that will affect them, whether they have their orthotics or whether they do not. Does that help?
0: Great. So, you, so Yeah, no, brilliant. I mean, I, I've certainly spoken to, to people who, who who sort of entertain the idea of getting this software in their practice, but but they're, they're, the hurdle for them is possibly not knowing how they're going to reconcile the findings with with what they're actually going to do. So they, they don't like the idea of spending thousands of, of pounds or dollars um, to get a bit of kit to get some data to put the data in the medical notes and then they don't do anything with that data. Um, If you were to advise someone completely new to, to, to pressure mapping uh, of any kind, and we'll talk about the different kinds in a second, but if you were to advise someone who was new to the game in a private practice that that was going to get a system, like how would you advise they start out, um, you know, like you said, the first five years at plus or a learning curve, uh, obviously you don't want to make that too apparent to the, to the athletes sitting in front of you. But how would you advise they start out? What, what should they, uh, how should they sort of hit that learning curve without kind of feeling too worried about it being obvious they're on a the learning curve?
1: Um, well, number one, again, you've you got to rethink your physical exam and make sure that you're very thorough. What I, again, I reverse engineered things are what, whatever I can do with an orthotic are the things that are the, the areas where I want to focus on segmentally. And then the same thing with the pressure mapping. Okay. So if I want to, you know, obviously I use first rate cutouts. A lot of people do not. Um And Craig's, you know, named appropriately, very nicely, uh, the Bruce test after me and how we did that functional it's limited test. Maybe we can do a video on that one since we get so many hits on the ankle joint uh, manipulation one. Maybe we can do a Bruce test video when we're in New York next week. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that said, you know, that's one of the things, at least for first ray. Then there are other things too, the stiffness values that I assess. So if you've got a good evaluation system and you know how to do that and you understand how orthotics work and you understand how taping can work, Just doing that and going through your process and watching. You want to watch the timing. You want to watch smoothing of the curves. You want to beg, borrow, or steal anything that Howard Dannenberg has ever written or published. Um, And I think if people are really, really egg me on, I've got some things that I need to scan and upload and put online for people. I have just about every one of the things he's ever written. I've got it in a box under my stairs in my basement, so I need to get Mm -hmm. that out. They're they're good things, but it takes you a while to figure them out. He talks more about force versus time curves than he does about comparing accelerations and other things like that. I found it easier to learn slightly differently, and then I backed my way into what was going on with most of the force versus time curves. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so fake it until you make it. If you're you're getting it because you want to do a running population, make sure you get a really good walking analysis. And just explain to him, because the walking analysis is going to give you. 95% of the data that you need, regardless of whether you get them on a treadmill, wearing this stuff, trust me, okay? Because they're moving much slower. Yes, they move a little bit differently and they can load a little bit differently, but unless you're really dialed up to a high hertz, a high frames per second, you're not going to get as good a data at looking at the running curves. And also it's interesting when people are running for a short period of time, they tend to run much more efficiently than they will walk. It is amazing. Trust me, you will see it. I sound like Donald Trump? Trust
2: me. But um,
0: anyway, <laughs> um,
2: yeah. Actually, my my experience is a little bit different to that person. That, that I, I've gone through phases where I've used pressure mapping, haven't used it, used it, and and I, I think the when I first started using it was when I was issuing. I thought, I thought it's not part of the diagnostic process. I for a while was not seeing the first midhead head lighting up like I would like. So I changed my casting technique to plan flex the first ray. And then I, so I stopped using the plant of pressure because it wasn't actually giving me any additional information, except on that really rare occasion. But we have actually just had two questions come in from Robert Isaacs. So I probably won't mention the second one, um, but Robert's <laughs> asked about yeah I, I think you've, I assume you've just seen the second question, Bruce. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but his first question was about um, Hallie Gabrielesi. So let's just share my screen. Um, and obviously, he is a mega pronator yes and uh, 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 that's going to be the new word now mega mega pronator now robert's asked a question about what do you think his center of pressure is going to be like in plant if you were to to assess him and and what what you could do to change it um
1: well you already had that just put up that video that little uh uh, screenshot you had earlier of the uh, suspension portion of the Oh, I, get yes. <laughs> I mean, that's obviously what it should look like, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, Not exactly, obviously. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I would love to see what that looks like. But well, again, as I said, when we, we had that earlier, this so-called suspension phase, just for lack of, you know, just that, that they happen to, to call it that, you know, there's he's still not hitting the ground. So it's not necessarily going to increase the pressures in that area. What's going to happen is he's still in general going to be more midline to lateral during that heel contact. What I expect to see with him. Everybody, focus. Can you run that video one more time? Everybody focuses on the pronation. Um, yeah, how much of that is how much of that is caused by uh, ankle joint aquinas? And just you know, give me a they, moment where root, root, root talks about that, and then he's he was correct that ankle joint aquinas definitely can increase pronation issues. So you know, is that exactly what's going on? Uh, maybe not. but the guy was still efficient regardless so you know what are you going to do to correct this that's that's a that's the question for a thousand thousand years do you necessarily want to make a mess with brilliance um maybe his career could have been longer who knows but I think he had a pretty long career anyway didn't he
2: yeah he's a fast runner and and this is evidence this is evidence that overpronation is not a problem this is evidence that foot orthotics work and this is evidence we don't know what we're talking about so um Yeah, we won't go that way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's just... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many factors that could be going on there. But anyway, I've I've not looked at this. I've
0: I've, I've, I've long wondered how much of that is actually just the uh, shoe and not his foot. I've long wondered that about that video. Well, maybe we're getting off the beaten track. Um, (laughs) Rob's just made a comment. uh, Rob's just made a comment. I think it's worthy of of, of mentioning. If Howard Dannenberg ever disappears, we need to check under Bruce's cellar. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, nope, nope. um So let's talk about um pressure plate versus in shoe. I believe I'm right in saying you're an in shoe man. um And again, I'm I have trying both. to frame this. In- oh, you have both. Okay, great. Even better. So uh, I'm trying to frame this again in the context of people watching who may be thinking, or maybe I considering dabbling um what, what are the pros and cons of each and, and i mean is there a reason you have both do, do people need both where do you start you know how would you would um sort of field those questions
1: well i lead more towards in shoe because i've used it more than anything else um but you can you know the, the the pressure mats are cheaper um they're easy you know i mean it's normally twice the price to get an in shoe system um roughly or anywhere you know or at least another to 30% more than, than getting a mat. Um, A lot of the mats that are out now, uh, sorry, tech scan, but your mats are not as high uh, definition as many of the other ones like RS scans, which is absolutely beautiful. And a couple of other ones that are out there that are very, very high definition. They're really, really nice. So the thing about the, the nice thing about the mats is that they're easy to use, easy for people to walk over Um, and actually you can do quite a bit if you know how to tape and accommodate your patients, you can test an orthotic prescription utilizing a pressure mat. Okay. Figure out what you want to do. If you want to use heel lifts, if you don't want to use heel lifts, if you want to do any posting, if you want to use a low die, uh, if you want to valgus post the lateral column, if you want to add a cluffy type wedge underneath the great toe, any of those things can be done and you can test that prescription on a pressure mat and you should see some changes. Now you can do the same thing with in-shoe pressure. One of the biggest differences between pressure mat and in-shoe pressure is that on the pressure matting, um, pressure mats, the f- if, the f- if the feet um, externally rotate or internally rotate, you know, abductor adductor, you're going to see that. So you're going to see them function this way. And then you can compare how the center of pressure works by how they're actually functioning, normally internally rotated, externally rotated. Okay, and that makes a difference. When you're doing in-shoe, you can't see that unless you get in video. They may do the same things, but you're not going to pick that up. So you can actually see that transverse plane uh, rotation, which is kind of nice. It is a big advantage to using pressure mats as opposed to using the in-shoe. Now, it depends on the patient population that you're working on and whether that's going to make a difference. Um, but they both have their pros and cons. If I were me, I'd go with the cheaper system to get going and start doing things. You um, can't obviously put it on a treadmill unless you incorporate it with a treadmill, though I found that those aren't very good in general and are ridiculously expensive. Um, you know, just have somebody run across the thing if you want them to do that, a couple of strides on each foot. Uh, you know, it, it tends to work just fine. Um, you're going to get the data that you need, but the walking data, again, as I said, is going to be primary. But the, uh, the nice thing about the in-shoe is now you can test against different shoes. Um, you can test, now you can see whether the shoe makes a difference. There are lots of reasons for the in-shoe for why it's better um, as far as evaluating shoes and as far as evaluating orthotics. Because if you have an actual orthotic, unless you're going to really sports tape that thing to the patient's foot and have them attempt to walk like that over the pressure mat, it's just not going to give you the data that, you're gonna, that you think you're going to get. The nice thing about an issue pressure system is if you put that sandwich that thing between the patient's foot and the orthotic, now you're going to get real actionable data. Is that orthotic that they got from one of your competitors or from, you know, Bruce Williams in the U.S. crap, or is it something that's working exceptionally well and we need to try and figure out how to reproduce this or pick up the phone say, can you give me the prescription so we can reproduce this? They moved. They don't want to go to you anymore. It's just one of those things because that makes a difference, okay? But then you can tweak it and make it better, lots of things like that. That's the beauty of the in shoe if you want to get to that level. You're starting out. Uh, you know, the mat is good. You can do the taping and the accommodation. Trust me, I do it every single day. There's that Donald Trump again. And no, the lighting is just terrible in here, Robert Isaacs. That's why I'm dark. Trump has not started messing with our electricity that I'm aware of. So, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Talk. Talk. While you're on the topic of the the, the in shoe system on top of the orthosis, the shell of the device, the yes. paper that we we, we the paper we remiss not to talk about is the one from uh, Simon Spooner, David Smith, and Kevin Kirby that was published in JAPMA a couple of years ago which which sort of highlighted what they perceive to be some of the limitations of of, of doing so Uh, the idea that some sensors are sitting on the flat and some sensors are sitting at at, a 45 degree angle and then questioning obviously the reliability or the validity of this data what's your sort of take on them on on that um that limitation
1: you know i've got to go with the fact that i I assume they're probably correct i mean they're made to be those sensors are made to be malleable so that you can get that data. If you don't make it malleable, how are you going to get that data in any other way? Um, Saying that, I will also say that my take has always kind of been, uh, again, these sensors give you two-dimensional data. If you want three-dimensional data, you need to use a force plate. Unfortunately, nobody has made a force plate that will fit into your shoes, and force plates will give you data that, is not as user-friendly or clinically friendly as pressure mapping data is. Obviously, it's cheaper and it's easier to work with, but it's two-dimensional. And you have to infer some of the planes. So like with transverse plane rotations, you can infer that within shoe. Varus rotations, you can infer that within shoe if you know what's going on. The sagittal plane is number one. It's king when it comes to pressure mapping. If you're using a pressure mat, now not only can you see the, the, the rotations of the feet at certain times if you're using video and then kind of syncing it up as best you can with the, with the pressure map uh, you know, the center of force, center of pressure, things like that. Now you can also see how those things work, why the foot's doing what it's doing, what it is actually doing at that time as it's externally rotating, internally rotating, or functioning rectus. Those things do make a difference. So, watching people walk barefoot on a mat is a good, good way to learn, especially even with a, a camera phone to, to take some video and, and record on that. You don't have to go real expensive. So, that said, the various rotations, I and mean, one of the things I've said for many, many years, and I know Craig can back me up on this, and I said it's four degrees. What do we all post, apparently, all post our forefoot, you know, our rear foot, four foot, Varus Four, four, four. Every single time I see somebody else's prescription, four four, I'm like, "You got to be kidding me!" Did you even do anything with this? Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously. And a lot of times, I don't ever use any four foot or rear foot varus posting. Uh, I'll use valgus posting, you know. But everybody, four four, I'm like, "Okay." Anyway, that said, um, how much? That's not four degrees. That's not a lot of movement. And as we've shown, again, I'm going to go and share this again. Oh shoot, I messed it up. Um, uh, the share the screen when we look at this center of force as we talked about look where the high pressures are here um, and see high pressure here center of force or center center of pressure here it is slightly more medial here it's a little bit broader but it, again it's slightly medial maybe a little bit more midline these things make a difference um, and now is this because there's curvature on the device did I use a medial heel sky which I did on my orthotics is that why this is higher here? Well, look what it did. It did actually bring in the center of pressure slightly more medial. Is it as obvious as maybe uh, Simon and, and Kevin would like when studying what they're studying? Probably not. Um, but again, we're talking three to four degrees, and maybe it's not going to make as big a difference kinematically as, as we would think. Because I think if you look at the kinematic actual kinematic studies using Vicon, they can't pick that up. There's no way they can pick that up. They can't get anything that small. What do they study most of the time? They study more sagittal plane motions um, at joints than they do necessarily. You know, they can do external and internal rotation. That's easy, okay? They can do sagittal plane motions at the MPJs and at the ankle and stuff like that, provided they do the calculations and they gather the data correctly. They can do those just fine. But how, you know, you've got so many studies that say, yeah, we didn't see a difference. Yes, we did see a difference. I mean, it's like, are they doing the data correctly? Is it the kinematics? Or is it the feet that they were using? There's so many different things to say how much of a change can we actually make. And as Craig has said so many times on Podiatry Arena, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Put that orthotic in the shoe, they're still going to pronate through the device. But my point is you, they may pronate into and through that device, but the question now is did the timing change? Though they may be pronating and creating pressure into that device, did their accelerations increase so that they're no longer... Flatlining. They're no longer stuck in pronation at that point. Now they were able to transition into that midfoot ankle joint range of motion moving in. But, that, but
2: that's exactly that why I, the comment I made earlier is the, it's the slope of that load coming off. The yes. Heel. That's yeah. what, you know, you, you, you watch them visually. I thought it made no difference, but the, the steepness of that curve of the load coming off the heel is much steeper. You know, you've made quite a substantial difference. Um, yep. And my assumption is if that load's coming off the heel uh, quicker and easier and sooner, there's less loads going through the tissues. That's less pathologic. So that's, that's, the, that's why I thought that was quite a parameter at one stage. Well, I still do. There it is. is. Yep. Okay. Um,
0: anything that's coming on? Yeah, there have been on? a
2: couple, but I think they've been touched on. Um, you know, Steve, I was asked, do you, do you have to use the mat barefoot only? Um, generally, yes. yes, do, but you can walk over with your shoe. But I'm not sure where that gives you any useful data. Would, would you do it with a shoe on over a mat, Bruce? No it's, no, it's, I've seen it. And um, I mean, you know, here, here's the
1: big problem the way the shoes function, if you've got a chunkier shoe, just the lever that it has, and if it's stable, it's going to pronate you faster anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? If it's, it's a more flexible shoe, now your foot can function the way it normally is going to, whether you've tried to make a change to it or not, but you don't know what the foot's doing inside the shoe. And that's ultimately why I feel that, you know, in shoe is superior. If you can have both, that's the best of both worlds. If you can have an inner inter- measurement unit or an IMU in combination, now you're uh, essentially got a portable gain analysis lab, but uh, that's, that's, that's
0: another story. Sure. Yeah. Bruce, when we do these things with patients, particularly when there's, there's you know, the, the screenshot you've put up a couple of times, very eye-catching, the colours and the, the foot shape, uh, there's a sense of theatre to it, I think that we, we would all agree. And um, certainly in my experience, and I've played around with this a, a bit as well, it depend, I, I've certainly picked my picked my athletes that i've not wanted to do this for because just like our language or any intervention we do has this ability to have this beautiful placebo effect and some people just the fact that they're looking at these colors they, they know they're getting the, or they believe they're getting the best care i've definitely made mistakes in the past myself where i've done it with the wrong type of personality these type a personalities that we that we refer to them in london and um, and suddenly that's it an hour session i, I can't get them out my door they're one of the take my laptop with them because you know they, they really it's, it's almost they attach themselves to it too much and it almost becomes nocevic uh, you know in, in theory what's your experience with with that is it is it is it universally sort of um a good thing to do or do you do you find i mean that certain people it's a really bad idea to do with
1: i haven't had that experience so much i, I will tell you what i have been told by professional athletic trainers a number of times when I've worked with teams is that do your analysis and don't discuss whatever you find with the, with the athlete. In other words, do it and let them go. They're like, let us take care of that later. And I'm like, okay, understood. And I mean, some of, some of the athletes are like, so, so what is it? What do what you see in whatever? And I'm like, well, you know, we're, go- I'm going to put together a report and we're going to give it to your train, you know, to the trainer. And then they're going to talk to you about this and they'll make some decisions. And some of them don't like that very much. And some of them do, and I'm sure they have their reasonings. Um, and that may be exactly along the lines of what you're talking about in general in my practice. I haven't found that as much, but you know, runners, if you're going to treat runners, you have enough runners you know, runners are high maintenance. Um, it, it's, it's that type of population. And, you know, if you're a runner yourself, it certainly makes things a little bit easier in understanding some of the things that they go through. Uh, but you're always going to hit those who want to focus on the information too much, just the same as they won't stop running when they, you've just told them, told them and shown them that they have a stress fracture, you know. And, you know, maybe they need to stop or maybe you can accommodate that area so that it no longer hurts them. Which is a possibility. It's something that you can do for, depending on where it is, and for some of the patients. But in general, if you know if the thing starts to move or it's just not healing, they need to stop. And obviously, many of these patients won't. They're just, as you said, they're type A plus, and uh, it's they, everything is super hyper focused, and that's just the way that they are.
0: I'm I'm uh, I'm conscious that we've been pretty much uh, unintentionally I think talking in the world of sports injury and, and musculoskeletal just because that's where the three of us live our lives and, and where our biases lie and I saw a question come in and I can't I can't remember who it was now um, about the, the treatment of, um, of diabetics uh, do you see I mean I know you're primarily uh, running a sports clinic as well Bruce but I mean do you see that kind of um, population of, of patients as well?
1: I do to a much lesser extent now than I used to, but I did plenty of it. Um, and the interesting thing about, so I'm going to go on a slight tangent here. I hate the idea that people feel that there are accommodative orthotics and that there are functional orthotics. And the reason I really hate that is because I've done enough pressure mapping to know that it's bullshit. Okay. You can't, <laughs> it's, it just is everything that we do. Has a functional component. Except putting a flat piece of Spanko in your shoe, just a top cover, that's not going to make a difference. But if you're going to wedge, or lift, or do something along those lines, or even accommodate, it may have a functional effect. When I treat my diabetics, I create a functional device that may have areas of accommodation. Okay, I don't. And people may call it an accommodative device, but I think that's crap. One of the things you have to realize too is that. High pressures are not the end, end way, it pri- should not be the primary focus of using pressure mapping. Lots of people have high pressures. People with metatarsalgia, people with uh, neuroma have high pressures. People with functional and or structural hallux limitus will have pressures off the chart underneath their hallux. You know who else has high pressures? People who are diabetic who have hallux rigidus or limitus functionally or structurally underneath the hallux but if they have range of motion within that joint if you if they get an ulceration right here if you cluffy wedge that area carefully okay if it will move and you increase their pressures two to five fold but decrease the timing event of that pressure that ulceration will heal i've done it multiple times if they don't have the range of motion please don't do that you're only going to make it worse okay and that goes to significantly overweight patients where you can't control their pronation um, and or their medial column is excessively low. And, you know, you just, it's just hell to pay because they're just overloading this whole medial column so much that it doesn't matter what you do. You're never going to unload that area. And I've tried and uh, it's, it's really, I mean, you literally, for those, for them, you have to put them in more of a a polypropylene or some sort of other more, you know, stiffer device because uh, the softer, functionally accommodative devices just won't work for them as well. But, you know, if they've got motion in a joint that you want to work around, if I can make changes on pressure mapping with taping and accommodation, I can do it with, with uh, allyplast Plastazote, diabetic orthotics, okay? So don't believe that these are not functional devices because they absolutely are if you will put in the prescriptive elements that will make them a functional device. If you're just going to cast them and accommodate you're going to get what you created, but if you're going to add the other elements that are necessary, as you would with anything else, you're going to get a better outcome. Your patients are going to, I think they're going to do better and they're probably going to heal faster and they're probably going to be a little bit more active too if they have less foot pain, except in diabetics that they can't feel their feet anyway. So that's another story. <laughs>
0: Uh great I'm uh, my questions are all all ticked at this yeah. end and I'm con- I'm looking at the time and I know you, this is about the time you you get anxious and start looking at your watch is there anything else uh, that's come through No I was going
2: to ask screen? Bruce about uh-huh. yeah, I was going to ask Bruce about leg link differences so so let's assume you have a patient there they have a leg length difference but you don't know it what are you going to expect to see on the pressure mapping
1: <laughs> Well um you're normally going to see one heel uh unload or off weight faster and earlier than the opposite side okay um the accelerations will move faster uh and the pressures will decrease on that let's say it's other let's say the limb lake's on the left side most of the time it's on the uh that's the short side so the the pressures will off weight or decrease on that heel very quickly the accelerations will move forward much more quickly on that side to the midfoot area and then things make and then they, they may catch up um, but uh, initially, that's what you would
2: see. Yeah. In other words, the sli- slope of the curve that load yes. comes off the area. So, you know, um, so what are you going to do about that? Anything? Or...
1: Well, I mean, hopefully, you're then going to assess them in standing and check their ASIS and PSIS and their pelvic level and de- decide: yes, this is an issue; no, it isn't. And also check their spinal curvature to make sure that they don't have a scoliosis. Um, provided you've done that, you also might want to check their ankle joint range of motion. Because if they don't appear to have a limb length difference, but they have about anywhere from three to five degrees difference in the ankle joint lunge and also the, the normal gastro or the the knee extension um, test for ankle joint range of motion Mm -hmm. or even just having them sit and pull their feet back towards them and seeing one side moving farther, you know, dorsiflexing more than the other that can give you some indications of what's going on, whether it's muscular weakness or actual blockage. Now that you kind of have a better idea, now you need to realize, what am I going to do? The interesting thing is when it comes to ankle joint range of motion and limb length difference, they, they look exactly the same and they kind of get treated exactly the same. If you can't mobilize that ankle joint to move effectively, now you're going to have to actually treat it as if it's a limb length by adding an extra heel lift. Now, sometimes that means you need to add, so let's say, an eighth of an inch on one side and nothing on the other, or you may need to add a quarter of an inch on the short side, or the ankle range of motion limited side and an eighth of an inch on the other side, because it may have some restriction as well. That's creating pronation issues that can be alleviated. So again, those are the things. The interesting thing is to treat them exactly the same. If you can't mobilize that ankle joint effectively to get more symmetry.
2: sure. So how important are the symmetries you see on plantar pressures?
1: I think they're incredibly important. I know that there are, you know, Kevin and, and, and others at times will say uh, symmetry is not that you know important uh, or not as important. But you know what, the the patient population that I deal with quite often—back uh, pain, hip pain, knee pain, uh, generalized foot pain—my goal is to get them to function as symmetrically as possible. And when I do, they get better faster, and they're much happier, and they become orthotic junkies. They don't want to go without their orthotics because they know what it was like beforehand. And if they go for very long without them, they're not happy campers. They, they have issues. Um, it works. Do you have to get 100% perfect symmetry? No, you got to get it pretty close or they're going to continue to have issues. Um, and it's, it's just physics. It's, it's biomechanics. We know how this works. And if you can fine tune those areas, it works relatively well and pretty quickly.
2: Sure. Yeah. I think when it comes to something like plantar fasciitis, on one side, not the other, perhaps working on the symmetries is not important. But when you're talking about those postural problems where the symmetries are going to have their effect, that's probably where it's crucial. But my experience is I've never been able to fix these asymmetries. I've been able to move them closer together, um, but never quite get that, get it, get it where, where you want it in, in the end. But whether that's enough for a therapeutic effect.
1: Well, it depends on the patient. I mean, if it's somebody that's had long-term chronic pain issues, you're never going to get the symmetries to a hundred percent. Now, if it's somebody that has chronic pain issues or they're, they're starting to have other issues, but they're in relatively good shape and can still function well, that's just, they're experiencing high level of pain and you're trying to stop that. Those patients, you can usually get to symmetry much closer, if not a hundred percent, and they will do a very, they will do very, very well. It depends on the age of the patient, depends on how, how good a shape they are in. All of these things make a difference. So, um, you, you have to take it, that into effect. You said something else and I was going to uh, respond to that. No, I can't think of it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll think about it. Sorry.
2: No, I think we've, we've, we've all, we've just come up to time, up to time. So you, you got nothing more there, Ian? No,
0: no. All, all, so, all ticked off this end.
2: Yeah. No, I think if anyone's got any other questions, I see a lot of people have been joining us late as per normal. The, the video will be there shortly. If they have any questions, I'm sure Bruce can come along and answer them. Um, so, Thanks, Bruce. I will will see you on Sunday in New York. Um, Anyone else who's going to IFAB, um, for those who've joined us late, the the video will be there in 10 minutes. It will be on YouTube later today, our time. And please subscribe to us on YouTube. So thanks, Ian. Thanks so much, Bruce. It's been – Cheers, Bruce. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Absolutely, guys. I really appreciate you asking. I appreciate it.